Hi, welcome to Howlcast. Uh, this week we are going to talk to Kip Adams um, of the National Deer Association, formerly QDMA. What's going on? How are you? Doing good, John. How are you doing today? Um, you know, I'm good. I'm like uh, trying to figure out my day here. It feels more like a Friday than it does a Wednesday, but um, rolling with the punches, making it happen. There you go. That sounds great to me. Yeah. How about yourself? Doing well. Exciting time of the year. Uh, like spring, things are greening up. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I love the seasons, uh, but uh, we get a little bit of green uh, in the spring, and I'm ready for things to turn green and uh, see some stuff growing. So, uh, yeah, it's an exciting time to be a field. Awesome. Why don't you uh, give us a rundown about yourself, and uh, we'll we'll jump into it. Sure. Uh, I'm the chief uh, conservation officer for the National Deer Association. Uh, been a, I've been a wildlife biologist for, for almost 30 years now, uh, working with deer and uh, uh, originally with moose, but uh, primarily with deer for, for the past 20 plus years uh, throughout North America. I'm very lucky uh, to get to do what I do for our organization. Um, I come from Pennsylvania, and actually I'm talking to you today from north central Pennsylvania. So uh, I'm blessed uh, to be in a state with tremendous hunting opportunities for a whole suite of wildlife species and uh, lots of good waters to fish, lots of good places to be outside and mm-hmm. uh, get, to, get to travel the country uh, to, to work with hunters and wildlife agencies with deer. So uh, I'm a lucky man. Awesome. Yeah, sounds like a dream job. What's, uh, let's talk a little bit about what uh, National Deer Association does and then uh, we'll go from there. Sure. We're, uh, we're a national wildlife conservation organization uh, with a mission to ensure the future of wild deer, wildlife habitat, and hunting. So uh, we work with, with hunters. We work with landowners. Uh, we work with state and federal wildlife agencies, legislators, um, anybody that's interested in deer or any deer uh, stakeholder groups. Um, we, we teach people about deer, how to enhance habitat for deer. You know, how to manage your populations, you know, how, how should you be able to hunt and make use of that high quality protein. So uh, anybody that has a, has a stake relative to deer or, or managing them or their habitat, uh, we get to work with. And uh, I like to say that nobody fights harder for deer hunters' rights uh, than, than the NDA does. Awesome. Um, so that being said, you got it sounds like you got a pretty good grasp on what the uh, – the the deer outlook is for the united states as a whole um let's first let's talk about do you see any problem areas um declines in population or um you know disease areas or anything like that that you know we should be uh, aware of yeah, um, overall, deer herds are doing pretty well. Um, you know, there, there's there's 28 to 30 million whitetails in in the United States. Certainly, places you know where you have local local populations that are uh, declining for for a number of different reasons. But but overall, whitetails are doing very well. Um, healthy populations. We have we have herds that are that are well balanced with what the habitats can support in many areas. Uh, we have a more natural age structure for whitetails than we've had in probably the last 100 to 150 years. So uh, those are very good things. Uh, from the mule deer end, uh, mule deer herds in most cases are doing pretty good now relative to what they were doing a decade ago. 
Um, you know, lots of declines and some pretty steep declines in mule deer herds in many places. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of those have been subsided a little bit, so they're stabilizing more so than, than they have in the recent past. So uh, um, overall, things are very good. Doesn't mean there aren't issues that those deer herds are dealing with, but uh, overall, uh, hunters are more engaged than they've been in the past. They're more knowledgeable about deer management and habitat enhancement. And, uh, and that's a good thing, John. That, that bodes well for the future of deer hunting. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I feel like education is the key. Uh, one of the things I know that we're, we're doing with Halfa Wildlife is that we're, we're pushing the education really hard um, on both sides, actually. We really want to start educating the non-hunting, not anti-hunting, but non-hunting public um, so that they have an understanding, especially when stuff comes up in the ballot box, um, on, on which way to vote because, let's face it, if we don't have them on our side, we're, we're in trouble. Um, but uh, so I, I did want to, I, I wasn't aware that the National Deer Association was involved in, in mule deer stuff at all. I thought it was almost all whitetail, but... Um, it, it's cer- certainly mostly whitetail, um, but we do get involved with a fair number of mule deer issues, particularly from a legislative end. Okay. Um, you know, just making sure that there, there's healthy habitat for muleys, uh, you know, that the folks have an opportunity to, you know, to go afield and they have access to get to them. So, mm-hmm. so that's where we get more in on the mule deer side uh, than anything else. Have you heard, uh, so that being said, that on, on the mule deer side, have you heard anything about, so Wyoming, Nevada, in Arizona and maybe even Colorado, I think they've all cut their tag numbers back this year. And I have, uh, yeah, I have seen some of that and I've been watching, you know, kind of what's going on relative to either, you know, uh, some, some habitat changes, um, some things, you know, environmental, some droughts and other things. So yeah, I've seen that, uh, uh, and not just on the mule deer side, there's some states in that part of the world that are cutting uh, whitetail tags as well, mm-hmm. uh, like, like North Dakota. So, uh, yeah, we, we try to watch that pretty closely. Yeah. Um, any, is it uh, strictly from a management standpoint that they're, you know, we're, I'm sure it's a management standpoint, but uh, are they seeing a decline in numbers in those states? And, and, and that's why they're, you know, adjusting to, um, to offset that, I've heard things about because of the drought and, and they're just doing it a preemptive. So not to, not to get in trouble. With- yeah. And, and it's also, you know, a reaction to, to what's actually happening on the ground. Uh, you know, all those states do a really good job of monitoring, you know, harvest trends, monitoring population trends and growth rates. So, you know, they're, they're able to adjust on an annual basis or some cases a biannual basis, mm-hmm. you know, to make sure that they continue to have very healthy deer herds, you know, they're not either under or over harvesting those herds. So, uh, you know, it's a good that they keep as close an eye on them as they do and adjust uh, appropriately to make sure that we're harvesting the right number of animals of, you know, both sexes each year during the hunting season. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about uh, chronic wasting disease and the overall outlook on it. Uh, you know all the common questions that you probably get asked on them, and uh, you know let's try to kind of give everybody a, a good uh, foundation on what it is and what to expect, and what you know what are some of the things that we're doing maybe um, to mitigate it. 
Sure. Uh, yeah, we, we get heavily involved with, with all the CWD stuff going on across the country. Um, we, as, along with numerous other wildlife professionals, see it as, as one of the biggest threats to the future of deer herds and hunting. Um, obviously, a disease that impacts whitetails, mule deer, uh, elk, moose, reindeer, uh, possibly some other species that, you know, that, that we just haven't identified yet. But certainly a lot of things that we like to hunt here in the United States are, are impacted by this. Um, one of the biggest issues, partly just because of the nature of the disease, you know, unlike hemorrhagic disease or, or some of the other things that afflict deer, uh, chronic wasting disease doesn't make its uh, symptoms known immediately. Uh, for example, most hunters are, are very familiar with hemorrhagic disease. Uh, not all deer die from that, but uh, mm -hmm. of those that do, they tend to die pretty quickly because the, the incubation period of hemorrhagic disease is only five to 10 days. So as a hunter, you know, these are the deer that we see in and around water sources. The, the disease causes fever. Do you want to go to water? We see it very quickly and understand, you know what, there's a big problem here. Mm -hmm. um, well, chronic wasting disease is very different. Rather than having an incubation period that's measured in days, CWD's incubation period is 18 to 24 months. Wow. So, you know, so it's a long time. And deer don't show any symptoms of the disease during that incubation period. So it's not like you or I are going to go out and see all these, you know, emaciated looking deer that are, that are dying of the disease. And, and the reason that we don't is because during that incubation period, deer don't show any signs, but the disease continues to eat holes in the deer's brain, which means then all those animals, whether it's deer or elk or whatever, they, uh, they lose the ability, you know, to get away from predators effective as effectively. So they're just far more likely to die to a roadkill, get hit by a car, mm -hmm. die at the hands of a predator, get shot by a hunter. So we can look at them and not recognize anything is wrong. They, they look completely normal, but their brain has been compromised because of the disease. So they're just far more likely to die. So because of that, that long incubation period, John, as hunters, we don't see them ending up in water holes. We don't see them dying quickly. So a lot of hunters tend to think, you know, this isn't that big of a deal, right. but, uh, but, but that's not true at all. It's a huge deal because there's no cure for this. There's no vaccine, there's no cure, and it's 100% fatal to all deer uh, and elk, all cervids, you know, that are impacted by it. So that's a huge, huge issue that a lot of scientists are trying to, to find the cure for right now, you know, to safeguard the future of our, of our wildlife populations. Yeah, that's and, – and so – Mainly, what are the main vectors for spreading the disease? It, uh, it's caused by a prion, which, uh, which is a misfolded protein molecule in a deer's body. So it's not a bacteria and it's not a virus. But what that means is an animal that has the disease, it can give it to another deer that it comes into contact with. So they share it when they're together. Um, the infectious materials that cause the disease are also in a deer's saliva, hmm. urine, feces, blood, semen. So these materials that are deposited at, you know, cross places in the environment, um, other deer that then come in contact with that can contract the disease. So it's so one of the things that makes it so hard to limit the spread is deer not only can give it to each other by direct contact, they can give it to others, you know, that come in contact where they were in the environment at some point in the past. So that that's how this is being shared and how it continues to spread. Mm -hmm. um, we do know that the two ways that it spreads the fastest are one, a live animal when we move them. 
from one captive facility to another uh, because there's not a, a, a reliable live animal test. So people okay. unwillingly, or I'm sorry, not, yeah, unwillingly, I guess, and unknowingly Unknown. have an animal, captive deer or elk, hay looks completely fine, ship it to another facility and then accidentally move the disease with it. Uh, that's the number one way it's moved. The second most common way is these infectious materials in an animal accumulate in the backbone, in that nervous system of a deer or elk, in the eyes, the brain, the spleen. So hunters, when we harvest an animal that has the disease, mm -hmm. if we take that carcass, the backbone, et cetera, and move it to another area, we then can unknowingly move the disease. So say I okay. come visit you, we hunt in a CWD area, you know, I shoot a deer, I bring the deer back home to Pennsylvania, which is illegal, by the way. Now, most states restrict the movement of those high-risk parts out of the disease right, zones. Right, to be all meat. meat but if I bring it back and I dumped it here out behind you know, my farm in Pennsylvania, other deer that then come in contact with that, that carcass or that backbone can contract the disease. So that's why it continues to – or the two easiest ways anyway that it continues to spread. So – it's also something that us as hunters can do to help limit the spread is to make sure we're not moving those high-risk parts around. Right. And what, what, um, what's the length of time? Yeah, I'm sure it's all, you know, relative to the, where it's at. But if you're, what's the length of time typically that the disease can stay alive? You know, say you shoot something and then this skull and backbone are out there and, well, researchers don't know the exact length of time that it does remain in the environment, mm -hmm. but they do know that prions have remained infective in the environment at CWD sites for up to two years Whoa. after they were deposited there. So, yeah, it's not something like, yeah, it's there a couple of days and it's kind of gone. It's something that stays so that, long, that to me seems like the biggest time. problem because like a deer is going to go, I don't know, to a water hole or something. That's right. And that's why water holes, mineral licks, you know, bait piles or feed sites, that's why they are those, you know, where they congregate deer in those small areas. Certainly, if you congregate animals, you have a higher chance of passing a disease. Mm -hmm. But then something like CWD that gets deposited at those sites, where even when that deer leaves, you know, other deer come in later, you know, drink from that, you know, water hole or mineral lick or whatever, they have the opportunity to then transfer the disease. So that's what that's definitely one of the barriers in limiting the spread of it. Crazy. That seems it seems almost uh I don't want to say hopeless, but for lack of better description, <laughs> hopeless. It seems like that's like an inevitable thing that it's eventually just gonna get everywhere. It's certainly a, a tough fight and and that's why it's more important than ever for for all hunters to, to become knowledgeable about the disease and what they can do to fight it. And, uh, you know, I'm an optimist. I firmly believe we will beat it. Um, but we need all hunters to be involved in that fight to beat it. So, you know, to not move those high risk parts and then to tell their buddies, I, I can't tell you how many hunt camps that I've been at where somebody there, yeah, I know what CWD is, but you know, they had no idea how it spreads. Um, didn't know they couldn't take those high-risk parts, you know, leave that camp and travel back home. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's up to us to, to not move those parts, but then also make sure our buddies know, hey, this is why it's important to leave that brain here or, you know, or, or to bury that backbone, you know, once we harvest that deer or elk. So there, there's definitely something every hunter can do uh, to, to, to engage in the fight. Um, so other than just, you know, moving and stuff like that, is there, there are there any other things that, 
the average guy could be doing to help help this along? Sure. Um, if you hunt in a Z zone, um, have your animal tested. Mm-hmm. Uh, more and more states are making you know test uh, or check stations available for testing or provide drop boxes to drop the head off. Um, get it tested, and and the reason for that is twofold. One, you know that allows the state wildlife agency to estimate the prevalence of the disease in that area and and the rate of spread, mm-hmm. and and then, you know based on how that changes, they can attack the disease differently. So you know whether the disease is first identified in an area versus if it's been there for ten years. The management strategies are very different, and the only way to know that is to have you know adequate testing. So if you hunt in those zones, get that animal tested. That helps the agency figure out the best uh, way to attack it, <clears throat> and then also it allows you to know if that animal is safe to eat. Now, fortunately, the, there's never been a case where they have identified CWD in humans, but uh, the Centers for Disease Control and World Health Organization both encourage hunters to not eat venison from CWD-positive animals. The only way to know if that animal has it or not is to have it tested. So if you hunt in a zone, get it tested, then you know if it's safe to eat or share with others. And it allows the state wildlife agency to understand the rate of spread of the disease in that area so that they can do the best job attacking it. That was actually going to be my next question about about it being able to eat the meat um are there some real telltale signs you know when you're out there hunting that you're looking at an animal that might have chronic wasting there's not um with the exception of animals all the way at the end of that incubation period so you know if an animal's had the disease for you know 18 to 24 months once they start showing symptoms, they go downhill very rapidly. And, uh, you know, within a matter of a, a month or two, they usually will simply waste away and die. So at that stage, yeah, everybody can look at that deer and say, there's a problem. However, remember, you know, they have the incubation period is so long that most of the time they have the disease, there is nothing discernible about them. They look completely normal. They look completely healthy, uh, but they're not. They, you know, they're dying from the disease. They are shedding those infectious materials during that incubation period that it can infect other deer. So, um, yeah, so I've heard, I can't tell you how many times people say, I eat the deer, you know, look healthy to me. Right. And uh, the, the reality is, you know, through that whole incubation period, they do look completely normal. There is no way to know by looking at them. You have to get them tested to know. Hmm. Gotcha. So definitely if you're in an area that's known to have it, that's a good idea to get it tested. Yeah. And if you're traveling to hunt, you know, and you're not sure, um, we, we being the National Deer Association, maintain a national database for every single county that has tested CWD positive across the United States. Okay, great. Uh, and we work with Onyx. So anybody that has the Onyx app, I communicate with folks at Onyx um, every single time another county finds a disease, I let them know about it. We have a CWD layer oh, on their awesome. app. It's a free layer for, for anybody who has the app. You can check. And it shows every single county that has the disease. Um, it shows the exact disease management area, like the boundaries of it, because they're not always follow county lines. Mm-hmm. Um, it lets you know if you're hunting in a disease zone or not. If you are, they all reference right back to the state wildlife agency websites to show, hey, do you have to submit a sample for testing? 
yes or no? And if so, here are the locations you can provide that. You know, are there uh, dumpsters to put the carcass in? Yes or no? And if so, here's where they are. So we have all of that information right at the hands, like right on your Onyx app, which is a super helpful, oh, yeah. uh, you know, way for anybody that's hunting uh, in a disease zone to know where those locations are, or particularly for folks who are traveling. Am I in a zone or not? It's it's super quick and easy to find it, and then be able to find all the resources you need right from that app. So uh, that's a great resource for hunters. Absolutely, that's a, that's huge. Um, I think I already know the answer to this. Like, but would you suggest now? You know, this is going to be up to the hunter whether they want to hang their tag on it or not. But if if you were to witness a, a deer out there that looked like it was kind of on that, you know, it's probably had it for about 18 months and you're starting to see that it, it looks like it's on the way out to harvest that one, knowing that you might prevent it from spreading it for the next whatever couple months that it might still be alive. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, you should never, well, don't consume it because you, know, you should never consume any animal that looks sick. Right. Uh, but that, that is being a good steward of our natural resources. If you see an animal like that to dispatch it, let the state wildlife agency know <clears throat> so they can have it tested. You know, in many cases, then uh, you are you are issued a tag, you know, that you can then continue to hunt. Not everywhere. So obviously you need to check with the, the wildlife agency, but many of them will issue you another tag, you know, to continue to be able to hunt or provide venison for, for your freezer. But, uh, yeah, you know, if you see an animal like that, you know, th that is, that's just being a good steward. Doesn't mean it has that disease because there's numerous other diseases right. you know, where animals, you know, can, can have some of the same symptoms. But, uh, you know, if you can remove, you know, a sick animal to landscape, that's a good thing. And particularly if it was a CWD positive animal, that is a great one to remove because then it's not sharing that disease with other animals. What are some of the other diseases that, uh, that are posing a significant uh, problem? Uh, hemorrhagic disease. Is that blue, um, is that is a, blue tongue also? That it is, yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So hemorrhagic disease is a, is a viral disease. That's caused by, you know, biting midges, you know, those little noceums mm -hmm. uh, during the summer. Uh, there's a couple different viruses. One is called epizootic hemorrhagic disease. One is called blue tongue virus. Um, they're different viruses, but they essentially cause the same thing. So people will group them together and just refer to that as hemorrhagic disease. Doesn't really matter for you or me whether it was caused by the blue tongue virus or the EHD virus, you know. Same thing is going to happen to that deer herd. So, but that's right. Yes. So, blue tongue hemorrhagic disease, whatever you want to call it, that's one of the, the biggest diseases that impact deer, you know, across the, the whitetails range. Um, and actually, it, it impacts other uh, things that we hunt as well, uh, pronghorn and, and some other species. But uh, hunters are much more knowledgeable about that or at least aware of the problems because that incubation period is so short that five to 10 days and we see deer dead. We smell them because they're all over the landscape in late summer. Mm -hmm. So that is a big one. Um, but it's important to know that not all deer die from hemorrhagic disease. You know, some get it and live. And those that live then can have those antibodies to protect against the strain of that disease, you know, the next year, which is very important. Um, 
that also tends to attack only in localized areas. So it's not like, you know, a broad brush like we see with CWD. Mm -hmm. and, and what I like to tell people between those two diseases, because they often compare them, you know, they're both important diseases of deer. They both negatively impact deer herds. But hemorrhagic disease is like that hornet's nest in that bush in your front yard. Mm -hmm. Every time you open your door, you can see that hornet's nest. And you know if you go mess with that, you're going to feel the pain. That's hemorrhagic disease. Chronic wasting disease is more like the termites under your house. Mm. You don't see them every day, but they're degrading the foundation of your house. And by the time you realize there's a problem, often then that foundation is degraded to the point that it takes you know, tremendous resources and time to correct. So hemorrhagic disease and CWD you know, impact deer herds very, very differently. They're both important. But we, we should not compare them you know, to each other or, or try to say that one is more important than the other. They're both important, and they act very differently in deer herds. Awesome. Um, real quick, so what, what is the, what's the vectors on that? Like what, what, what's passing that disease along? In, in hemorrhagic disease, it's yeah. those, uh, the, the midges so those little biting insects so they the bite one that, the one that already has it and then that's right it's for okay. that blood meal so if they bite a deer that has it and take that blood meal when they go to another deer and bite another deer mm -hmm. then if the deer's doesn't have the disease once they bite that then that's how that they will transfer it from one animal to another okay now is that a disease that could be transferred to other species or even humans there are uh, humans are not impacted by it. Um, it can impact uh, pronghorn. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, our antelope populations there in, in the West are negatively impacted by that. So uh, some livestock species are impacted by that. So, uh, yeah, there's there's others, that, you know, other reasons for us to, to be aware of that as well. Um, and we also know that and there's a lot of really good data on this that shows that hemorrhagic disease tends to be worse, at least in the the northern two-thirds of the U.S. Hemorrhagic disease is a lot worse in drought years. Uh -huh. So, uh, you know, we can watch a drought index as the summer starts, and if it's getting bad, we can predict where some, some hemorrhagic disease outbreaks are going to occur um, because the mud flats around water areas, uh -huh. you know, when the water, we have a drought, the water is down, all that exposed mud, that is a perfect breeding ground for those midges, mm -hmm. you know, the vectors for the disease. So we get deer that are congregated at those water holes because there's less water in the landscape. So they're right there where we have the perfect breeding ground for the vector. So that's one of the reasons that, uh, that we can predict some of that based on drought. Yeah, I have witnessed it. Um, God, it's a long time ago now. Uh, I would say probably 15 or 16 years ago up in Idaho. Um, there was dead deer everywhere on the sides of the road, just wiped out. I don't even know how many deer, but a lot of deer in this one area. Um, yeah. and it was, it was crazy. It was pretty sad, pretty sad to see that. Um, and you know, it wasn't all that long ago that, you know, that disease was not even across the U S uh, I did my undergraduate work at Penn state university back in the late eighties and early nineties. Uh, at that time, the hemorrhagic disease was literally taught as a disease of southeastern deer. Hmm. End of story. Move on. Next disease. It just it wasn't in the north. It wasn't across most of the Midwest. It wasn't across most of the West. In uh, but as 
the vector. So as, as our years tend to warm a little bit, those midges move north farther north and north and north. And now the disease is all the way from the southeast up through the northeast into Canada. It's all across the central part of the U.S., all, you know, Montana, Idaho, et cetera. So, uh, but, uh, but that's very different than, than what it was two or three decades ago. It's crazy how far that disease has moved in a pretty short period of time. Yeah, yeah, Jesus. Kind of seems like most most things are kind of going going downhill <laughs> all all the way around the world, mm. no matter what you're talking about. Oh, it's uh, it's pretty crazy. Um, I wanted to kind of talk about deer management and you know maybe just some like broad philosophies as you know average hunters hunting public land, obviously because we can't really do anything to the habitat what you know just kind of having like a an understanding of our how our actions maybe impact things like i don't i'm trying to i'm trying not to give you the answer but but i'm trying to be really vague on the on the question um you know like from a from a hunter standpoint like what are some of the things that we can do to um you know from i don't even know how to put this i had i had the question in my head formulated but i can't like get it in words but it basically what can we do to help promote healthy deer herds within our area that we're hunting i guess that's about okay. the easiest way i can uh, are you talking on public lands or private lands or, or both? We could talk about both. Okay. Um, well, we can certainly start, let's start from a, from a private land end. Um, you know, somebody who owns land or has the ability to, to manage the habitat on private land, you know, can, can learn all they can about managing the forested end of it, you know, the old field end of it, a food plot end of it. There is an incredible amount of information that we have today uh, just on our website and all three of those different vegetative components to teach people how to make deer habitat better. You know, better for deer and numerous other wildlife species. And, uh, and hunters are more engaged in that than, than ever before. And, and that's a great thing. We have a, a, an educational course called Deer Steward. Mm-hmm that we've been teaching since 2007 and uh, we have an online component and we have some in-person components to this and uh, every one of those classes we measure you know the the impact on the acreage you know from the students in the class and since 2007 uh, students have been have come to this and some of these are hunters some are landowners we do these as private classes for uh, for trainings with state wildlife agencies students to that class have impacted over 15 million acres of land so think about that. Think about that footprint across, you know, wildlife habitat in the U.S. and Canada, 15 million acres. So uh, that's one thing hunters absolutely can do. Um, if you want to talk about a private land end, a lot of uh, natural or National Deer Association members get involved with their state wildlife agencies or federal wildlife agencies in the area to promote uh, good habitat management in their states. They do things like, you know, encourage prescribed fire. They do things like encourage cutting and timber harvest so that you have a good balance of, of age structures of forested environments. They, they help with plantings, uh, cover plantings. They help with tree plantings. They help with food plot plantings, all kinds of things, you know, to, to, to be able to, to make that better. And we actually have an initiative right now called, you know, improving uh, access um, 
habitat and hunting on public lands mm -hmm. where we have an initiative over the next five years and we're one year into it. So by 2026, we're going to enhance habitat, hunting and public access on 1 million acres of public land in the U.S. Awesome. We're, it's, a, it's an initiative through the, the Forest Service where we go in and work with Forest Service staff to be able to cut timber in areas where we have these overmature forests, you know, that's providing very little for, for many wildlife species, you know, to be able to have that timber harvested, which then makes those areas enhanced for many wildlife species, but then use the money from that timber harvest to put back into habitat work on those forests. Hmm. So, you know, things like other areas, like we improve access, stream management, you know, some roads, you know, to allow people to be able to access those areas, all kinds of habitat work. And that's all done in conjunction with Forest Service personnel. So it's everything in the name of wildlife. So, uh, and our members are extremely active, you know, with that initiative and helping with that. So, yeah, doesn't matter if you hunt private land or public land, you know, we are huge advocates of, of enhancing habitat, making sure that it is providing adequate cover and food for not just deer. You know, much of this is down yeah. the name of deer, but there are so many other wildlife species, you know, that benefit from good deer habitat. So uh, we're, we're very excited about that and certainly proud of our, our members' efforts and, uh, and what we're able to do from the national end to, to help with that. Awesome. Um, before, before I let you go, what are the largest, I don't know, pick five laughs, five or top 10, whatever you want to say, things that are negatively impacting our deer herds throughout the U S what are, what are uh, the I, factors? I'd say number one is, is chronic waste and disease right today. Um, I think that's even bigger than habitat loss, certainly way bigger than the anti-hunting movement. So, uh, and we probably could can just put that into to disease as as the category, but, but CWD is the biggest part of that. Mm -hmm. um, hunter aging, and, and what I mean by that is uh, hunters are aging out. You know, the the demographics of hunters today continues to become older and older and older, and uh, so as a as a hunting. Uh, group, we need to diversify some and certainly bring some some younger hunters into our ranks. And uh, and there's a lot of programs out to try to do that today. And, and that is a very good thing. You know, we need to, to be more diversified if hunting is going to continue to fund the majority of our wildlife programs in the future like they do today. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's one of the things that, uh, that, you know, it's an issue that we certainly have our eye on. Um, habitat loss is always an issue and uh, particularly uh, in areas where uh, wildlife cover is a big deal um, you know think of the agricultural midwest you know crp the conservation reserve program is the most successful federal uh, wildlife habitat program in our nation's history <laughs> and we continue to lose acreage in that that's being put back into crop production um, so that's in an area that, yes, we're losing that habitat, we're losing that cover, but it's also, you know, some of the most critical vegetative components there. You know, it's not like the southeastern U.S. where there's cover everywhere. Mm -hmm. This is an environment where that is the most limiting feature of, or habitat feature anyway, and then that's what you're pulling out, you know, from under that deer herd. So, uh, so and obviously every corner of of the white tailor mule deer's range you know there there are habitat aspects so uh habitat is, is a huge well, I know thing out here that. in the west I, out here in the west is, is just a crazy expanse of growth yes uh, i was just Devel having this conversation with, is killing us 
you know, we have, you can look at a hundred numbers something of people a day moving to Arizona. And, that's right. You know, we have, they all need houses and parking yeah. lots and, and shopping malls. So, uh, yeah, that loss of habitat is, you know, that is, that is a, a perpetual threat to our future, uh, wildlife programs. Um, and certainly that's no less true today than it's been in the past. Right. You know, especially in a place like this where we're in a desert, the biggest thing, you know, the lim biggest limiting factor has always been water, right? And now you have more people that need water. So we're taking more and more water, putting more and more concrete down. So we're compounding the heat here. Um, man, when I first moved out here in the early 90s, you'd go outside at nighttime in the summertime and it wasn't, you know, 110 degrees still outside mm. now it's like it's almost as hot as it is at nighttime as it was during the day mm. and it's all because and that that's affecting the weather patterns i've actually looked into some of that you know some of that's the science behind that that we and we see it all the time we see the monsoons like that we normally would get in the summer roll in you see the clouds roll in and then they pass right over us because the heat is just so intense and 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 rising up from the earth it's actually pushing and creating a a uh, like a thermal um wave that pushes them it pushes the clouds away from us and it rains somewhere else <laughs> you know yeah. it's it's pretty crazy i don't i mean i don't know i don't know what the answers are there to fix that but yeah and just for the sheer number of people moving into your state um, you know, there's some research out of Florida right now where, you know, similar circumstance where there's so many people moving in mm -hmm. where just a bunch of the products that uh, that we end up disposing the toilets, cosmetics and different things mm -hmm. um, because there's so many people there. They're finding that stuff ending up in, in our water systems now, which is having some negative implications to some amphibian and, uh, and fish species. So, yep. uh, yeah, too many people. In small areas like that, you know, it's kind of like the CWD thing and the termites, you know, there's, there's a lot of negative things happening that we can't recognize on a day-to-day -day basis mm -hmm. that are, that are hurting our wildlife populations. Yeah. Without a doubt. You know, it's funny you bring that up about the water. Um, there's a, there's a study and I kind of, I started, you know, I looked at it as from a human being first and then I started thinking about like, this must be affecting them, you know animals as well in, in some shape way or form um but because there are so many women that are on birth control and when they urinate the estrogen goes into water and they don't have a way to get that out of the water that's why more and more men need testosterone supplemented to them and why mm. And, and they're, they're equating a lot of the, you know, masculinity of men and, and, and boys not being what they were when you and I were kids, um, to that. And I was like, wow, this gotta be like, you know, affecting deer and, and, and other things as well. <laughs> I, I mean, it's, it's crazy. I and mean, I'm sure we can sit here and talk about all these, all these things going on in the world that would possibly uh possibly be affecting and what we could do about them but the, i mean the simple reason the simple answer is there's just too many freaking people in the world mm -hmm. we've we've exceeded our carrying capacity for this place and, you know but anyway that's a that's a different discussion 
So, um, anyway, you were saying we got the habitat we went, I, and I and I promised you I'd take us off on a tangent. No, I think those are the big ones, John. Um, you know, and, and you can find you know different aspects of those, and you know, in, in each corner of the country, you know, that might impact them a little bit differently. But uh, it doesn't matter where you are. The ones that we just discussed, those issues, um, wherever you are, and uh, you know, in deer or elk's range those issues uh, are impacting those local herds yeah without a doubt um is there any things that, uh, that we can be doing as hunters that can help along with some of those things or like you know from a from a day-to-day standpoint yeah, I think uh, continuing to hunt is a good thing because we're, you know, then we're continuing to pump money into our wildlife management programs, which then allow uh, agencies to and or other organizations to, to continue to uh, preserve or, or manage habitat, allows us to continue to, to manage those species, continue to do research and surveillance, etc. So, uh, yeah, as hunters, man, continue to hunt. You know, go afield, continue to buy firearms and ammunition and other things that help fund our programs. Um, take somebody hunting with you. You know, we, we need more hunters. And there's going to be some people here that say, geez, you know, it's already crowded where I am. And man, I get it. You know, like I don't I don't want to be crowded when I'm hunting either. But, you know, the model that we have today, the vast majority of all of our wildlife programs are funded by hunters. So as we lose hunters, that, that is not good for the future, you know, of this of this thing that we love. So, uh, you know, continue to hunt, uh, take somebody with you, show somebody else, you know, the, the wonders of, uh, of the outdoors and nature. So uh, th- those are some things that we can do that will absolutely have positive impacts, you know, on future wildlife populations and, and, and those wildlife management programs. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on and uh, sharing your knowledge with us. Always appreciate your input. Absolutely, John. My pleasure. And, you know, feel free to reach out anytime. And uh, any of your listeners, you know, if they have uh, questions about something I said or or would like to reach out, you know, they can reach me at kip at deerassociation.com. Uh, or they can just go to our website, deerassociation.com, you know, find the stuff that I was talking about or uh, or find me that way. But uh, I'm glad uh, to talk to anybody, you know, relative to, to deer habitat or answer questions. So, uh, yeah, they're welcome to contact me anytime. Awesome. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. All right, John, you have a great day. You too.